You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Hey, good morning, Life Church Livonia. Good to be with you this morning. Thanks for joining us here on Facebook and on YouTube. My name's Alex. I'm one of the sermon, one of the sermons, I'm one of the pastors here preaching today's sermon. And if this is your first time, I just want to say welcome. We're really glad that you're here. And we believe that God has brought you here on purpose today. But before I get too deep into what's happening today, I want to invite you into this. Our church has done a home campaign for a permanent location, a building of our own this past fall. And we are praying and fasting throughout the season of Lent over this campaign over the fact that we don't yet have a building we're asking God to show us where he would want us to be so we're praying every week over a different thing this is available for download so if you call Life Church Livonia your home please join us as we pray and fast and discern God's will for our next steps well today we're continuing our series on the book of Proverbs called life is hard but it's harder when we're stupid In this series, we're taking a look at the book of Proverbs and the foolish attitudes and behaviors that lead us away from God's good, beautiful, and full life he's made us for so that we might live wisely. And today we're talking about the topic of laziness in the book of Proverbs. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the book itself. You see, we're not just preaching topics here. We're preaching scripture. We're preaching God's word. And as a pastor, I need to know that if we preached a whole series on the book of Proverbs, you can walk away and read that book a little more clearly and accurately because we did that series. So the first question when we're talking about the book of Proverbs is the question, what is a proverb? Growing up, my dad was and is infamous and famous in our house for his little one-liner sayings. We'd leave the door open and he'd say, holy smokes, my retirement plan is running down the street. Or something like, Alex, look at that, your allowance just ran out the open door, stuff like that. Now, those aren't proverbs, that's just sarcasm. But a proverb would be something like this. When the door is left open, poverty is not far behind. (laughs) That would be a proverb. But he did have plenty of proverbial statements, not just sarcasm, although they were mo- they were always intertwined a little bit, right? We'd get home from a trip and we'd get ready to unpack the car and he'd say, remember kids, no one's done till everyone's done. Or he'd say, all right, people, teamwork makes the dream work. Or, you know, late, we'd be cleaning up dinner later that night and complaining over who was going to do the dishes. And he would say, guys, in a healthy family, No one does everything and everyone does something. Your mom made this meal and so we are going to have to clean it up. Things like that, right? But as I got older, his sayings transformed into things like joy is spelled Jesus, others you. Leaders are learners. It's about progress over perfection. Or are you making deposits or withdrawals in that relationship? I also have a memory of youth group being frustrated that my group wasn't going deeper. And my dad said, If you don't like the temperature of the room, change it. You can choose to keep being a thermometer or you can choose to be a thermostat. That one really stuck with me. Gordon Fee writes this about parenting and wisdom. He said, parents teach their children all sorts of wisdom virtually every day and often without realizing it as they try to help them make right choices in life. 
Whenever a parent gives a child rules to live by from don't play in the street or try to choose nice friends or be sure to dress warmly enough, the parent is actually teaching wisdom. Most parents want their children to be happy, self-sufficient, and a benefit to others. A good parent spends time shaping the behavior of their children in this direction, talking to them regularly about how to behave. So Proverbs are in their most truest form, concise statements, summing up truths learned from life experience in order to help one live well. It's wisdom in an easy to remember format. Now, every culture throughout all human history has proverbial statements and sayings that are meant to impart wisdom. And our definition for wisdom you can see on the screen is the ability to discern right choices in the midst of alternatives. However, not every cultural wise saying or proverbial statement is wise in the eyes of God. Because in the Bible, wise choices are synonymous with godly choices. And that's not always the case in every culture. Because the moral fabric of the world that would constitute our definitions of right and wrong, good and bad, constructive or destructive, the Bible says are actually determined by God. This is linked to what Pastor Don Earl Johnson talked about as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a moral mindset that reminds us of our place in the universe, that we're not God. And we don't get to make up our own definitions of right and wrong. And we don't get to determine what's true about reality. God is the one who made reality, and he's the one that decides right and wrong. And the fear of the Lord is this posture that humbles us so that we embrace God's definitions of reality and right and wrong, even when it's inconvenient for us. So that's kind of the premise of the book of Proverbs. There's these wise, concise statements that help us live well in God's world where he has made right and wrong. Now about the book itself, I want you to understand three things. I want you to understand the construction of the book, how it's organized. I want you to understand the kinds of fools in the book. And I want you to understand some of the premises of the book. And then we'll jump into our topic. So thing number one, the book is organized into really kind of four main sections. Chapters 1 through 9 are an introduction to wisdom where a father is telling his son who's about to rule. And it's believed that Solomon is writing these Proverbs to his son saying, this is how you live wisely in the world and how you rule wisely as a ruler. Chapters 10 through 29 are just various wisdom sayings. I kind of call it the wisdom pile. You know, they're not organized by topic. They're just kind of all thrown in there. And so you'll notice as we've been going throughout this series, we're picking and choosing from all these different places, not because we're just being random, but because it's not organized topically. So as we preach on a topic that the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about, we have to pick and choose the topic across the book. Chapter 30 is this new insertion of a new author. His name is Agur, and it's the wisdom of Agur. And he's kind of this model reader of the book of Proverbs as he searches for wisdom in high and low places. And then finally, chapter 31 is again a parent and child conversation, but this time it's from a mother, King Lemuel's mother, to her son, King Lemuel, about how to live rightly. And in Proverbs 31, we see this woman who is kind of the embodiment of all the lessons of Proverbs. She doesn't uh, necessarily have to be a real woman. She is a, a model, a, a, a paragon that goes, this is what wisdom embodied looks like. And indeed, throughout the book, wisdom is portrayed as a woman that the Proverbs 31 uh, is kind of an embodiment of. 
So the book begins and ends with these parents trying to teach their children to both live well and lead well. The book of Proverbs constantly contrasts the wise person with the foolish person. But when we say fool, there's actually four different Hebrew words. And again, you know, this isn't, doesn't have a lot of bearing on our topic today, but as a pastor in good conscience, I just need to know we've talked about these things, right? So that you understand this book. So I just want to briefly kind of survey the four different fools that the book of Proverbs talks about. The first fool is just this immature fool. And, and the Hebrew word for this is petayim. And this is someone who's simply even, immature, even age appropriately so, right? Children are immature. These are people that just do stupid, foolish things. Don't stick the fork in the outlet. Don't touch the fire. You know, they're, they're foolish, but they're teachable. Okay, that's a petayim. The dullard, which Proverbs, the, the Hebrew word there is kisilim, these folks are complacent, they're reckless, they're slanderous, they're untrustworthy, but they're potentially teachable, right? These are just kind of a rough and rowdy, mocking, sarcastic group of people, but there's a good center that is willing to live differently. There's the cynical fool, letzim, and this is often translated as the scoffer or the mocker or the scorner because this fool mocks things that are of value and scoffs at those who would help them. And they seek wisdom not to know and live differently, but to make themselves look good. And they're kind of always putting down other things and trying to elevate themselves. And then finally, Evelim, the obstinate fool. This is a person who's volatile, they're reactive, they see their opinion as the best one, even scorning help and wisdom and advice. And no matter what proof you show them, they're stuck in their ways. We saw a lot of Evelims in 2020 and 2021 online. You know what I mean? Just like nothing you say matters to them. They are, they are right all the way to the end, even when they're blaringly wrong. So I just want you to know as we read through this book together, that there's these different categories of a foolish person. And then before we jump into our topic, the last thing I want you to understand about the book really is uh, these four major premises of the book. The first one is this. Proverbs are not promises. God does not make these promises to us that are to be claimed by faith. Instead, Proverbs describes the general and natural wisdom of how to live wisely instead of foolishly, which leads to godly choices and a full life most of the time, instead of a life to death and destruction. Proverbs are generalizations that are generally true. But the second premise is there are exceptions to these rules. Uh, they're not ironclad promises like salvation by grace through faith. That is meant to be claimed in the name of Jesus. But for example, while it's generally true, a gentle answer turns away wrath, that's not always true. Sometimes a gentle answer doesn't turn away wrath. And sometimes a gentle answer isn't the right response to the situation at hand. And we see Jesus do that when he flips the tables, right? So that's generally true, but there are exceptions to the, the statement that a gentle answer turns away wrath. However, that doesn't mean it's unwise. There's a, again, the cynical fool says, well, because there's an exception to the rule, the rule doesn't matter. And that's also not true. The third premise of the book of Proverbs is that Proverbs have a universal application whether someone's a follower of Jesus or not. Any person who follows the book of Proverbs will live a better, fuller life than someone who doesn't. 
The book of Proverbs, interestingly in scripture, has no what we would call covenant language, meaning it doesn't talk about God's people specifically. It doesn't talk about the temple. It doesn't talk about the sacrificial system. It's a book from Israel, but not just for Israel. And then the fourth thing is that God is the source of wisdom and truth. God is the maker of the moral fabric of the universe over all societies, governments, cultures, and people for all time. All truth is God's truth. And all things we know from life or experience or truths we gain through study find their source in God. And His will and way is the ultimate expression of wisdom and fullness of life. This key understanding undergirds the premises of the whole book. So now that we understand the way the book's organized a little bit, that it's this parental wisdom learned from experience to help us live wisely, and we understand the different kinds of fools and the, the different uh, premises of the book, I want to talk a little bit about what Proverbs has to say about laziness. Our map for today as we look at this topic of laziness is these three questions. Who is the lazy person and is it me? Why is it bad to be lazy? And how do we move out of laziness? So the first question is simply this, who is the lazy person and is it me? There's 10 passages I found in the book of Proverbs that talk about laziness, or as the book likes to call the lazy person, the sluggard. Uh, and we're not going to read all 10, but we are going to read enough to get this idea of who this kind of person is. So who is the lazy person? Well, we're going to start in Proverbs chapter 6. This is one of the first ones I found. It says this, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So in the first half of this passage, King Solomon, who's writing this, contrasts the sluggard with the ant. He says the ant has no commander, no ruler, no overseer, and yet it's able to work at the proper times and provide both for the present and the future. Now, what's cool about that comment that they have no commander or overseer is that they're self-motivated and they're proactive. They don't need the pressure and accountability of a manager who will reprimand them if they choose to slack off in order to do what must be done. Another little fun fact about ants is they're inherently communal creatures. Even down to their biology, ants have two stomachs. One is for their own food, and the other is to store food for a fellow ant that might not have been able to find any. The ant is self-motivated and does all of this work not for the sake of itself or its own survival, but also for the sake of its community. The sluggard is contrasted with the ant even more in the second half of this passage. In verse 9 it says, How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. So by contrast, the sluggard is not proactive, not self-motivated, not living for others, but only living for themselves. They need a master to work because they have not mastered themselves. And we see this in their warped relationship with comfort and with rest. In contrast to the ant who works in the summer and spring and rests with the seasons, the sluggard is resting when it's time to work and when it's time to rest. Solomon simply says that someone who lives that way and is unable to motivate and master themselves and at the same time lives only for themselves 
will be inevitably shocked when one day they have nothing. Now, I just want to make a, pre a preface here. You may not think of yourself as a lazy person. I know I certainly don't. But all of us struggle with this tendency. And when I fail in this, I have to come back to the Lord and repent and say, Lord, I don't want to be this way. So regardless of whether or not you see yourself as a lazy person, I just want you to humble yourself with me in this sermon and listen to these scriptures and let God convict us and say, Lord, might this be me? Because that's the invitation of each of these. We don't want to be so proud that we're foolish, unwilling to listen to wisdom and wise advice. So I think this scripture is calling us to ask the question, am I a person who's driven inwardly and, and living not for myself, but just to bless others as well and support those around me? Or am I the kind of person that takes rest at inappropriate times, driven by my own comfort and my own desires? This is our first glimpse into laziness. The next two passages hit on similar issues, and we'll start in Proverbs 15. It says this, The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. So this is an interesting proverb because it begs a question. And the question is, why are the thorns there? The term, that the way, right, that, that the way of the sluggard, it's used to evoke this imagery of a road or a path, but it's referring to a way of life. Now, imagine you were driving down a road and that road was so overgrown with thorns you couldn't get through. The reason it would be overgrown is because whoever's job it was to tend and trim back these thorns and bushes neglected it for so long that the untended parts of the road took over. Furthermore, if the path is overgrown, what do you do? You cut the thorns down. You begin tending it. You don't just walk away. The second passage emphasizes this by comparing a sluggard's life to a field. It says in Proverbs 24:30, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere, and the ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. So again, the imagery of a lazy person's life is that their way of life is so overgrown and congested that it's unfruitful. You tend the thorns and the weeds and construct the wall in order to protect and cultivate the plants that are able to bear fruit. In the life of a lazy person, though, the parts of their life that require cultivation and therefore require energy have been neglected. And where there should be a garden bursting with fruit and vegetables and life, there is only chaos, weeds, thorns, and brokenness. The result is that the, the, through the thorns, they are literally a pain to themselves and to those around them. And their life is unfruitful. Not giving or blessing those around them, but instead unable to support anyone, even themselves. And again, this scripture invites us to ask, do I leave parts of my life unattended and let them grow out of control? And can I see how this does or will hurt myself and those around me? The next passage is four verses that we're going to break up, and I want to comment on each one individually. But the first one has kind of a, a sister verse in a different chapter, so I'm going to read them together. I'm going to start with Proverbs 22 and then read 26. Proverbs 22:13 says, The sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. And then its sister verse in Proverbs 26:13 says, A sluggard says, There's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. 
So this is an interesting proverb because if the lion is outside, it implies the sluggard is where? Inside. So if the sluggard is not outside, but inside, how would he or she know that there was a lion roaming around the streets? The fact too that this kind of comment is what makes them a sluggard really leads me to believe that there's not really a lion out there, but that the lazy person is overinflating the danger and challenges that lie outside the doors of their own comfort. And instead of embracing the adventure that lies beyond the literal threshold of their own comfort, they refuse to change, they refuse to progress, they refuse to move forward or set out for somewhere better than where they are right now because they've overestimated the danger and effort of change and they have underestimated the losses of staying the same. And we have to ask the question, am I a person, maybe in my marriage, maybe in my relationship with my kids, maybe at my job I've been in for a long time, maybe in my relationship with my family, am I a person that is frozen or demotivated by the challenges I think I may encounter or the energy that might be required of me if I move forward? instead of dealing with what is, not just what might be, for the sake of a better future. Verse 14 says this, As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns in his bed. It's funny because a door turns on its hinges because it's literally screwed in, locked into the wall, right? The door's turning is its only purpose and function. That's all doors do. They turn. You know what I mean? That's the whole gig of a door. So there's a little bit of sarcasm in this proverb because what it's saying is that a sluggard is like that. It's just locked to the bed and all he can do is turn. But what's sad about that verse is that the reason the sluggard is able to be compared to the door is because they've sacrificed their purpose for comfort and for rest. They've traded the purpose of a human being for the purpose of a door. And I know people like this who sleep their days away, who struggle to hold a job, who have no purpose and are just listless, waiting for life to do something other than what they're in right now. And their broken relationship with rest numbs their motivation for purpose and robs them of it. And we got to ask the question, is that me? Do I sacrifice purpose for comfort or rest? Verse 15, a sluggard buries his hand in the dish He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. This is a great verse. Again, we got a little bit of sarcasm in here. I imagine a guy just putting his hand into a bowl of M&Ms and then just looking at it and just going, I have to bring it back to my mouth. You know, just like, you know, you know, we've all been this person. You've been watching Netflix too long. It goes, are you still watching? Your hands in a bag of chips. You're like, don't ask me that. You know what I mean? So it's a funny image, but what this verse is exemplifying is twofold. The first thing is this is a kind of person who does not finish what they start. They go halfway and they give up. They struggle to see things through to the end, even essential things, because the second thing it shows is that the sluggard put his hand into the dish. What's in the dish? Food. Food is in the dish. And food is essential to our well-being and survival. Not only does the sluggard finish, struggle to finish what they start, but they cannot even do so in order to meet their own needs, let alone the needs of others. 
This is an image of a person who will not put forth the necessary work in order to take care of themselves. One of the crazy parts about this is I see this not just from people who run around and, and I mean, who don't run around and who rest a lot and who are frozen in their beds or numbing or narcotizing or watching Netflix too much. Uh, I see this even more from people who are busy all the time. And because they're busy, they struggle to finish what they started. Tim Ferriss says in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, being busy is a form of laziness. Lazy thinking and indiscriminate action. Being busy is most often used as a guise for avoiding critically important but uncomfortable actions. And Eugene Peterson echoes this in his book, The Unbusy Pastor. Great book, by the way. He says this, I am busy because I am lazy. I indolently let others decide what I will do instead of resolutely deciding myself. I let people write the agenda for my day's work because I am too slipshod to write it myself. So whether through hectic activity or through slothfulness, the lazy person struggles to finish what they start and meet their own needs. And again, the text is asking us to ask, is that me? You know, this has absolutely been me in many different seasons. When I first planted the church, I was lazy by being busy. Just I wanted to feel successful and I was constantly busy. But I remember very clearly uh, learning this lesson in a different way when I was in seventh grade. So imagine with me, I'm in seventh grade. I'm in the middle of my second season of baseball. I'm hating it. I hate practices. I hate games. I'm a guaranteed strikeout for the other team. I mean, I just am so bad at batting. I was only average at the outfield. And I was so bad at batting, while practicing batting, I broke my two front teeth out with a baseball bat five minutes before a game. So here I am, I'm getting ready to go to practice, I got brand new fake teeth in my face, and I just don't want to do it anymore. And I walk into my dad's room, and I'm dressed in my uniform, you know, got my Oakland A's hat on, and I walk in, Dad, I can't do it. I can't finish the baseball season. And he goes, why not, buddy? And I just cry and tell him, I just, it's too hard and I have fake teeth now and I, you know, like all these things. And he just sits next to me and puts his arm around me and says, buddy, you made a commitment to this team and they're counting on you to keep that commitment. You don't have to play baseball again next year, but you made a commitment and you do have to finish what you started. And he just held me as I cried and cried and cried and cried because I just didn't want to finish what I'd started. I've been there. I've been this person in multiple ways in multiple seasons. And lastly, our last verse for today is this. A sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven people who answer discreetly. So the last thing we see about the lazy person is just that they're ignorant, that they're even lazy. The lazy person in this verse cannot even tell they're unwise. And this makes sense in the short term because a lazy person is traditionally trying to preserve energy. And the reasons for that are numerous. It can be a fear of failure expressing itself. Well, at least I didn't try my hardest and fail. It can be less existentially stressful to not try and fail than to give it my best. It could be a fear of not having enough, enough energy, enough love, enough wisdom, enough resources. It could be an expression of self-hate. The reasons are numerous, but in the immediate, the need for comfort and rest is met in the lazy person. But 
Laziness, like all sins, makes a promise it can't deliver on. Because it doesn't just bring rest, it brings regret as time moves on. So our second question, why is this bad? Hopefully you can already see that. Hopefully you can see that through all the different things we just talked about, uh, this is not a life that you want, but that's not even the worst part. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see this picture of God making the earth. And on the earth, he makes a garden. And he makes human beings to be co-gardeners with him in the garden. And in Genesis 2, we see this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Part of the human purpose is that we were made to be co-gardeners with God in the world that he has made. That this is part of our purpose as human beings. However, the lazy person trades that purpose for self-preservation. And they become sort of an anti-gardener. Letting the field become untended, unkept, and allowing the thorns to grow and take over for the sake of avoiding pain or preserving comfort. But when comfort and pleasure or avoidance of pain are our primary goals, we not only ruin our lives, but our ecosystems. This doesn't just destroy the garden, it destroys us, and it violates our original purpose, and in effect, it dehumanizes us. That's the real sin of laziness. It robs you of your purpose and your ability to bless and care for others and dehumanizes you while simultaneously destroying your relational, emotional, and physical ecosystems. That's why it's so foolish. So our last question, how do we move out of this? Where do we go from here? How do, how, what's the next step? Well, I think it takes four things, and I'll be brief with these. Thing number one is we have to catch a vision for our purpose. You have to catch a vision for your purpose. Because part of where laziness comes from is this lack of vision for a better future that is worth the effort. Jesus, one day after healing a woman on the Sabbath, is chastised by the Pharisees. And in response, he tells this story. In Matthew 13, it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of all garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. You see, the mustard seed is tiny, but it grows into a plant that is a gift to the whole garden. It doesn't just become a bush, it becomes a tree. And that tree creates an ecosystem around itself, bringing new life to the field that was not there before. Not only that, but it is strong enough for animals to come and rest in its shade. This mustard tree is an image of the kind of life that God has made you for. And when the woman I spoke of earlier, when she was suffering, she enters this place of worship on the Sabbath and she encounters the Pharisees. And when she encounters the Pharisees, she receives impatience, annoyance, dismissal, and is treated as a burden. When she enters the synagogue and encounters Jesus, however, she receives healing. Jesus' life is a life that produces fruit. His presence is a healing presence. And when this woman comes to the tree of Jesus' life, she is able to rest in his shade so that wherever Jesus is, healing is. Wherever Jesus is, rest is. Wherever Jesus is, heaven is. Wherever Jesus is, God is. And that's meant to be you too. Like the mustard seed, you were not planted on this earth on accident, but on purpose. And God has a vision for your life, that you would grow into a life that is a blessing to your environment. A tree that is large and strong enough for others to rest in the shade of, so that where you are, heaven is. Where you are, God 
is. And that kind of life is a life that is worth the effort. The second thing we have to do in order to catch that vision for our life and make it stick is we have to put rest in its proper place. Because there's a difference between leisure and laziness. God commands rest on the Sabbath one day a week and certainly did not set the world up for us to be working 12 hours a day, 365 days a year. We have limits and rest is good. It's a gift. It's a beautiful part of how God has made us. But when we don't have a healthy relationship with rest through the Sabbath and through limits on our work, we have an unhealthy relationship with rest and we take it in inappropriate ways. So we aren't cutting out rest and comfort. We're just giving them a healthy expression in our lives. The third thing we have to do in order to move out of laziness is just to ask why. What's the root? Why am I being lazy? Why am I just so busy that nothing ever gets done and I let down people that care about me and I never provide for my own needs because I'm all so busy always doing someone else's stuff? Why is this in me? Is it laziness? Is it fear? Is it, is it learned helplessness? Because people always took care of my needs and I never had to learn how to take care of my own. Is it trauma? Is it pain? What's the root? When did this attitude begin? Was there a time in my life it wasn't this way? You got to get beneath the surface in your own soul and just go, Lord, what is going on here? Why is this lack of fruit in my life here? And get honest with yourself and God. And then when you find what that root is, we got to pray and repent. Laziness creates a victim mindset that takes away our power to choose and power to change. But that is not what's true about you. You do have the power to choose and you do have the power to change. However you've lived up until now does not have to be the way you live starting now. You can decide to be new. You can decide to grow a mustard seed kind of life today. However, laziness isn't just the result of someone else's actions or someone else's decisions, it's the result of our decisions, of my life, of my sin. And it is a sin that I need to repent of. But freedom from sin and deep character transformation, a mustard seed kind of life, that doesn't just come from gritty self-effort. It comes from a miracle of the Holy Spirit that happens when I confess. And when I receive Jesus in a new way in my own soul, when I allow him to transform me deeper, and when I repent and live differently. So if you find yourself here today and you're feeling the weight of conviction going, holy smokes, I didn't know this was even in me, let alone that it was this dark or this bad. I want you to know that Jesus came from heaven to earth to live this perfect human life, this sinless life, to die on the cross for our sins and put them to death. And that includes the sin of laziness. And then to rise from the dead to give us a new kind of life, a new kind of life with him. And if you're feeling God moving your heart right now, I just want you to know that's the Holy Spirit. And I want you to pray with me right now. I want you to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've lived these parts or pockets of my life in laziness and it has robbed me of my purpose and my joy and my potential. And Lord, I've hurt myself and I've hurt others and I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to be dependable, not a burden. I want to be self-aware, not blind. I want to be capable, not a victim. I want to be wise, Lord, not foolish. Lord, change me by your Holy Spirit. I need you and you alone to give me new life and transform me from the inside out. Lord, I recommit my life to you and into your way of life. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
you just prayed with me today, please reach out to us via our digital connection card because we want to walk alongside of you as we seek to live in a new way to be human with Jesus.